Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Tom Stuber, CEO of the Lakata Way to Wellness and Recovery a leader in recovery services since 1981, serving residents in Lorraine and Medina counties. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Tom has more than 35 years of experience in the field of addiction recovery services. And I asked Tom to review the admittance assessment and discharge records of my son, Sam, for both treatment facilities that he completed treatment in. I should share at the outset of this episode The purpose of today's interview is not to find fault with the treatment provided to Sam, but to identify the best course of action, knowing what we know about this disease today. So Tom, how would you summarize Sam's diagnosis? Well, in reviewing the records, um, Sam was using uh, opiate and alcohol daily and cocaine at least monthly. And I think their diagnosis was correct. He did need an inpatient level of care to get some stability and to get through the withdrawal. Have you seen others with and had experience with others with a similar diagnosis? Oh, absolutely. We're seeing probably 60% of those that are coming through my agency right now presenting with a very similar profile. So that has to present a lot of additional challenges for you having a dual diagnosis. That's what we're talking about here. Well, and again, that becomes a difficult issue because most individuals with an addiction can be considered uh, having a dual diagnosis. So many of those that are in treatment have experienced uh, or have a history of trauma. And trauma is probably a significant contributor to the progression of the illness in addition to the neurological base of the chemical itself. And so as a result, um, we see individuals coming in not necessarily with a psychiatric level disturbance, meaning that they need a medication to assist, but they certainly need ongoing counseling to assist with trauma and their ability to deal with that trauma from the past and let, so that it won't become as intrusive in their life from this point on. And many will come into our treatment uh, also presenting symptoms of depression or anxiety. If you understand the neurology of of addiction, it's a brain disease that affects the chemicals, primarily the neurotransmitters in the 
um, limbic system, which is the pleasure center of the brain. And there's a natural reduction in dopamine and serotonin, which are two of the chemicals that are based are the basis of uh, depression and anxiety. And so there's almost a natural response to when you have a reduction in those chemicals that are important for being stable with depression and anxiety being reduced, the individual's going to have those symptoms. There's a secondary factor in that people with addiction often engage in behaviors that violate their values. We all have values. We grow up, you know, none of us in high school said, I want to grow up and be an addict. And we usually build our life around the values that we have. Well, as a result of loss of control from addiction, you'll end up seeing individuals who will engage in behaviors that are far outside that value. I begin hurting my family. I begin stealing. I begin lying. None of those fall within that, that uh, who I see myself to be. And as a result, I start feeling worse and worse about myself. And so there's a situational depression and anxiety that occur as well. Those are all addressed through talk therapy. Doesn't necessarily require a medication to address, but they do need to be addressed as a part of the individual's treatment. Hmm. So you assess that on intake? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and ongoing. Part of treatment is an ongoing assessment. Any individual walking through my door seeking an assessment for um, alcohol or drug treatment will present, you know, not the whole picture, and not the whole picture partly because they're still very well defended, trying to keep that ego intact, they have to develop emotional defenses. So they're but the painting other, the picture that they want you to see. Well, I think that they are painting a picture to try to reduce the impact, but the other part of it is that they don't truly see all the consequences that have occurred, and their history is somewhat, it, it has gaps in terms of what their use has been, what the impact has been. And so their reality is very different from the other people around them. They, uh, the loved ones that care about him will see a different reality than he does. So what lessons can be learned from Sam's documented treatment at both IBH as well as the treatment alternative slash Boca House. Well, I, I think there's a number of things that um, I guess I, I feel that it's important to address. Uh, Sam had what would be considered a successful treatment at IBH. He completed the treatment and he had six months of recovery and had established a support system in the community. And he actually reported at Boca House when he was assessed that the uh, the supports he had in his life were his family and his support system. So there was still some of that intact, even though he had returned to use. Relapse, he uh, returned to use after six months or maybe a year. That wasn't clear in the, in the assessment, but some, it was cited uh, differently in two places. So he had some, some success. The difficulty was that when he went into the uh, program in Florida, that um, there was really no um, connection back to the program that he had in um, at IBH. Would that have normally been an expectation that a new program, you start out in a new treatment facility, be it in-state or out-of-state, that you would connect back to the Abs last one? Absolutely. I mean, you can't start 
treatment from a position that everything I have that the, that the individual gave me in terms of their self-history and self-report is accurate, nor even knowledgeable. At IBH, some things were done that helped him move from active addiction to recovery. It would be important to get that information because you want to replicate what worked in the past. And you also want to see what gaps there may be so that you could address it again in his subsequent treatments. Many people will have multiple treatments. And again, that should not be seen as a failure. That this, this illness is a chronic illness like all chronic illnesses, whether it's diabetes, whether it's heart disease, whether it's asthma. The only difference between one chronic illness and another is what organ it attacks. I want to go back to that statement for just a second. Okay. So, and relapse. And, and before you move on from relapse, that point, as, as a parent trying to support someone in their recovery, um, you, you really do view uh, a relapse as failure. Why should we not view it that way? Well, as I was saying about being a chronic illness, all chronic illnesses have a very similar relapse rate. That what will happen is the individual, and let's use the example of diabetes. Again, a chronic illness, the only difference between one chronic illness and another is what organ it attacks. So if I've got diabetes, it attacks the pancreas. If I've got uh, COPD, it attacks the heart, asthma, the lungs, and addiction, the brain. But the same process happens in terms of the recovery. One of the things that people are taught in treatment is how to manage their illness. Recovery is a very simple equation that's very, very difficult to do. And the example would be diabetes. If I'm diabetic, I know there's three things I have to do to manage my illness. I need to um, change my diet, I need to take my medication, and I need to exercise. And let's say for six months I do that, religiously. All of those are, are handled. And six months later, I'm starting to feel pretty good. And I'm starting to feel normal again. And then my mind starts working that maybe you are normal again. And I start thinking, whether it's pre-consciously, subconsciously, or even consciously, you know, I can take my medication every day. That's no big deal. And exercise, I feel kind of good after, after exercise, and I built that into my, my daily regimen. But you know, I'd really like to have that donut for breakfast again. And so the first time I push away saying, no, that's really not good for me. And then next week I have one, and nothing really happens. The following week I have two, and the next week four, and then I'm back in the emergency room in a diabetic crisis. That happens with all chronic illnesses. We begin to compromise the management of that illness. And that with addiction, that's highly deadly and dangerous. But if I do have a relapse, the important thing is that also in my treatment program, I'm taught how to recognize when I'm headed towards that relapse, I'm taught how to respond to that relapse, and hopefully I've engaged in a contract with my family and my support system that if I do relapse, this is what I commit to do to get back into recovery. Whether that's re-entering treatment, re-engaging with my support group, it could be anything that is moving me back in the right direction to managing my illness. People talk a lot about triggers leading them into relapse. Yes. How important is it for someone to know their triggers? Oh, it's absolutely critical. 
that has to be a major part of treatment from the very beginning. Um, that if a relapse will begin to occur anywhere from days to months before the actual drug use begins again, that the individual engage in a progressive pattern of behaviors and attitudes and feelings that are leading them right down the path. The example being, and, and I stress this at the agency, um, there are relapse triggers that are universal. That, you know, I stop going to meetings or I stop praying or I stop talking to my sponsor. And those are universal. And I, you know, I will occasionally walk around the agency and say to ask a client, what are your relapse triggers? And if they tell me those things, then I'll go straight to the counselor and saying, I guess we don't need you. They can get that out of the book. But if I ask the, uh, the client, what are your relapse triggers? And he says to me, you know, when my wife starts talking about her ex, within a few days I start getting this uneasy feeling. And within a few days after that, you know, I start thinking about use again and, and how that used to relieve the stress. And then a few days after that, I may be using. Um, it's a progressive deterioration of attitude and behaviors that lead to the person compromising the, uh, the management of their illness. That is critically important for people to understand that because you can interrupt that at any point along that progression until the use starts again. Mm -hmm. And then the only thing you can do is pick the person up and get them back into treatment and then put a heavier emphasis on helping them recognize their, their relapse triggers to prevent the next one. Yeah, it would seem as though that would be um, pretty challenging to dig that deep with the people to, to, you know, with your, your patients to get that honest and open and, and, you know, and out there for them. But that's what treatment is. Hmm. The, the digging and the self-evaluation and helping guide that self-evaluation to a um, meaningful uh, understanding and a change in behaviors. I think what separates good treatment programs from ones that are uh, less effective is how much of what they do is presented as education versus how much is actually in-depth therapy. Now, programs need to have both, but some will have a much stronger em emphasis on one side versus the other. And that it's critical that you're taught about this disease of addiction and taught about recovery, but that personal insight and that personal commitment to change has to be brought out, and that happens through therapy. People will go through a grief process, and that's, their, that's the therapy versus the education. A grief process. A grief process. First thing I have to do, and it follows Elizabeth Cooper Ross's stages of grief for losing somebody with dying, and I start off that I'm kind of in denial, and then I go through the, you know, the stages. Well, I have to do that with treatment as well till I reach the point of acceptance and that that has to be done. And that doesn't happen because somebody's telling me information. It happens because of the work I'm doing personally, intrapersonally and interpersonally, to help make a difference in my life. I don't want any blind spots. And my therapist has to help guide me through those potential blind spots. So, Tom, if Sam were to walk into your facility today, what course of treatment would you recommend? 
Well, I think that from the um, psychosocial assessment and the neurological and psychological assessment that um, I reviewed, um, he'd definitely need either a, well, he'd have to start with some level of detox to make sure that we could get him safely through that medical distress of, of not having the drug. But the most critical part then would be either residential treatment or recovery housing with a day treatment or partial hospitalization level of care. The um, part of it is he needed to be in a safe environment. And I know that Sam said to the family when he needed after his relapse that he needed to be out of Ohio to get that. And I don't necessarily agree. You can have somebody get into a safe drug-free environment and still remain local. He was successful at IBH. I question why he didn't return to the last place he was successful at the level of care he was successful at. We see oftentimes treatment centers will, um, if somebody relapses, they have to go all the way back to the very beginning. That's not necessarily the most effective and efficient way of doing it. They need to go back to the last level of care they were successful at and address before they transition back down to this, yeah. the lower level of care. And so I think an IBH or a residential program would have been a terrific place to start. But the other piece is that with opiate addiction, we know that it can't be the typical 30, 60, or 90-day residential, that it needs to be a step down in terms of rehab levels of care because it takes the brain 35 weeks to stabilize. So if he finishes a 30-day residential and then goes directly to aftercare, he's still going to be going through significant neurological rebalancing or changes for, um, that's what, 12 weeks? So for another uh, 23 weeks, he's still going to be going through these episodes of post-acute withdrawal. So can you define that? Can you go down a little bit on that 35 weeks in terms of what does that mean? Okay. Uh, well, everybody is different, and the, the rate of uh, the brain restabilizing is different for everybody. But so, but restabilizing. Kind of a, can you state that? Pardon? What restabilizing is? Okay, what and that's what, I, that? and that's what oh, I was going okay, to get okay. to. Sorry. And so it changes for everybody. But the whole process of before somebody can really um, move uh, into a rehab level of care and begin working means that they start with detox. And the detoxification process is the restabilizing or the renormalizing of the organs of the body. Most organs of the body will stabilize within um, seven to ten days from opiates, except the brain. The brain goes through episodes of readjustment or, or restabilization. And so while the distress of going through the withdrawal, um, stops in terms of my liver and kidneys and, and other organs that are affected, it doesn't with, with the brain. And so the brain will go, and after seven to ten days, it will start to feel normal again. The person won't feel great, but they'll feel better and they'll feel functional. But then there will be episodes where the brain will all of a sudden go through, again, a readjustment period. And the individual will wake up one morning and he'll feel highly agitated, he'll have a high level of craving, and feel as if he had never stopped using. Those are periods where they're highly susceptible to return to use. 
And the, those episodes will last for shorter duration and be farther in between, but they will continue to occur for a long period. And it could be as much as two years, but the bulk of them will begin to subside or be more manageable after about 35 weeks. So, you know, I, uh, I think the perception, maybe it's changing, but it was that for opiate addiction, it's just a matter of finding a good rehab facility and working it for 30 to 90 days when in reality it's much more that uh, it goes into long-term recovery. Yeah, well, uh, recovery is a lifestyle and it's a commitment that the individual has to make for a continuous uh, management of that illness. If they have diabetes, I think that there are episodes of care that they'll go through to help stabilize and teach the individual how to manage that illness. But then there will be ongoing checkups. And then the individual will also have a lot of um, human struggles. We all want to believe we're normal. And so we want to engage in the same thing that everybody else is. Everybody else can have a donut for breakfast. Why can't I? And so those factors have to be dealt with. And they are effectively dealt with through support groups. AA, NA, um, Cocaine Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all of those are very effective support groups where other individuals have gone through the same struggles I'm going through right now and survived and are even recovering and learned how to best work it. That's a great support that the individual needs to have. And I, I made a comment before about um, class weakening rehook up with IBH. He needed to be in a safe drug-free environment, which a, re a recovery residential center can provide. And whether it's IBH or some of the other fine institutions around this area. But the other important fact is that the individual in recovery needs to begin developing a support network. Individuals can't leave the state, get their treatment, and come back and not have that support system set up. And that's critical. And I think one of my, the concerns I had in reading the, uh, the record is that uh, the institution he went to made no initial connects with the um, previous areas that he, he had received treatment, yes, whether, it was, whether it was the residential treatment for addiction or his recovery supports that he had or even the psychiatric hospitalization he had just five months before, none of those were consulted with in terms of what worked, what didn't work, what, what additional supports, and what arrangements could be made to move him back and transfer him upon the completion of his treatment in Florida back here for a continuation that could have been focused solely on reestablishing those supports. Somebody, it's not, a, it's not a, an acute episode. There are so many conditions that are treated as acute episodes that are very effective. I fall, I break my arm, I go into the doctor, he sets it, bone heals, nothing more is ever needed. But a chronic condition means that I'm going to have to do regular checkups, I'm going to have to continue to monitor and manage, and I'm going to need support systems. If I have, a, if I have diabetes, you know my doctor's setting up another appointment six months from now just to do a checkup and see how I'm doing. Those, those extra supports need to be in place. And unfortunately with Sam, it didn't appear that they were.
So that brings about uh, a question. It, it didn't happen in Sam's case with uh, the facility he went to in Florida. So how would you advise families go about selecting the right treatment facility for their loved one that's opiate-dependent? Well, I think that there is no, um, I have no concern about families interviewing places, visiting places, but also getting references and asking tough questions. What is the discharge planning? What is the relapse uh, prevention planning and what are the services that are provided? What is the connection to uh, establishing the uh, supports in my community. If my son's coming back to my community, I want the supports there. Now, you know, some programs have been very successful and families have been happy sending their loved one to an area away from the community. But they also have the understanding that their loved one cannot come back to this community uh, because they don't have the supports and this has been an area where they're using. And so there's some facilities that have recovery housing and recovery communities and the individual will stay in that area where he's established those supports. But that's got to be a decision made with the family and the, and the loved one. Are you ever coming back? And if you are, what needs to be done here and what's that institution going to do to help make those uh, conditions happen? Referral, now, uh, another piece is that families need to know that it's not just a referral. A referral says, I give you an address and a name, and you call them when you get back. That's not preparation for discharge. There's discharge planning, and there's discharge preparation. Discharge planning is that I know that my relapse triggers are, and then I know that I've got methods for addressing those. Discharge preparation is, have I made the appointments? Have I had a session with, you know, generally an individual, uh, I think that the... National average is about 35% of individuals will not follow through with a referral. And if that's the case, why? In most cases, it's because there hasn't been a good connect with between the referring agency, the individual, and the receiving agency. There is no reason why, um, based on this day of technology and the use of telemedicine, that counseling sessions couldn't already start locally while he's in another state. And I have a tendency to respond or to comply if I've already got a relationship with that organization. If I've already established a therapeutic relationship with my counselor, I'll follow through. Those kind of things should be done in preparation for somebody leaving a treatment center. Really good points. Um, so, Tom, how important is a sponsor and the family and group therapy or individual counseling, spirituality, friends, 12-step? I'm, I'm just throwing a bunch. At <laughs> you, you are. You are. <laughs> and, and, and throwing it right back, they are all critical. Every one of those components. Uh, it's absolutely critical for a person's ongoing recovery. Family needs to be engaged. One of the problems in uh, addiction is that families tend to be kept off balance. There is a battle cry among addicts to divide and conquer. So one member of my family may know one thing, 
another member of the family might know something else, but there's also this no-talk rule that the family is not talking amongst themselves. Part of preparation for discharge is the development of a discharge contract that I pull my family in, and this family will know me and see me intimately more than anybody else. And if I'm doing, if they see one of my relapse triggers, you know, if my sister sees one relapse trigger, she might play it down as not a big deal. But if my mom sees another relapse trigger and they're talking, all of a sudden there's two relapse triggers and I need to be, and we need to be concerned and we need to pull out that contract that my loved one said that if this happens, this is what I commit to do to get back in, in recovery. So family is critical. Family also needs to heal because as the loved one is continuing to go down this path of destruction, he's pulling the family with them. We are emotionally tied to our loved ones. And when they hurt, we hurt. And the insecurity and the, and the questions that we have, you know, we form our own answers, but usually those answers aren't correct. And for us to begin doing that healing process is, is critically important. The other things that you asked about were sponsors and support group. Um, again, if I'm going to struggle with this lifelong illness, I need people around me who've struggled with the same things I've struggled with and gotten, you know, gotten through it, survived, and gotten better. And so they've got some answers that will help me that may not have been addressed in my, my counseling or my therapy, partly because of timing and partly because of you know, the therapist is a professional, and these are peers that are going to help walk with me through this process. Spirituality, we abandon all of our critical life uh, values as our disease continues to progress. We begin to engage in behaviors that violate those values. Spirituality gives us a basis for reestablishing those values, and that's important for me to learn that who that ideal self is again and try to live accordingly. Now, were there others? <laughs> there was a lot of lists there. Um, well, you hit on most of them. Okay. But the one that you didn't hit on um, was the sponsor. Sponsor is absolutely critical because he is the cornerstone of my support group. Uh, he's the one that I can intimately be involved with and, again, has the life experience that can help me through those new life experiences that I'm going to have as a newly recovering person and help guide me through that. Okay. So that's critical. Having absolutely a sponsor, critical. Absolutely critical. Okay. Now, there's a lot of different kind of recovery programs being put out there that are not 12-step based. Hmm. Um, and our treatment program is not 12-step based. We are very much education and therapy based. But we also critically believe that the 12 step is absolutely essential for somebody's long-term recovery. So it would seem as that's contradictory, not being 12 step based, but yet 12 step is critical to recovery. Let, let me explain. We are partners. We are partners each with a separate role. Many people can get recovery simply by getting into 12 step programs. Many people aren't effective aren't able to get into recovery simply with that, but many are. For opiate addiction? For opiate addiction. Wow. Um, on the other side, treatment programs can be successful, but I don't believe any of them are 
without the support of 12-step programs. We catch the person falling, try to help turn them around, and then hand them off to the 12-step community because that's going to be their lifetime partner. We are only a, a, a part of their life. They're going to need these supports the rest of their life because their illness is not going to go away. Yeah. So what part of their life, in other words, on average, how many months then would they be engaged actively? In treatment? You? Yeah. Um, we would like to see them involved, you know, at least that six months, get close to that 35 weeks, um, by a year preferably to get them through that. But then the other piece is they have ongoing checkups, just like I would with my physician for our different chronic illness. So, scheduled after, what, six months? Well, it, it would be, uh, the time between them would be progressively longer. We'd like them to come back probably monthly in the beginning, and then three months, and then six months, and then as, as needed. Okay. Yeah. Somebody doesn't need to be chained to a treatment center for a long period of time. They do need the support of an ongoing recovery program for a long period of time, the rest of their life. Okay. So, boy, you've shared a heck of a lot, Tom. Uh, it's tremendous. Um, so what else would you like to share about perhaps the opioid epidemic in general and uh, addiction recovery specifically for our listeners? Okay. Um, I think the, the one piece that I really want to share is that this is a neurologically based illness. It is a brain disease, and it's been identified that as that by the American Medical Association and has been for years. It is not an issue of willpower. It's not an issue of um, um, psychiatric disturbance. It is not an issue of uh, the person having you know, bad values or being an evil person. They have a condition that needs treatment to help them stabilize. They can be the loved one, again, that you remember that you'd like them to get back to, but they need some help in getting there. And that rather than punishment or, um, well, rather than punishment, loving care is what they need. And they need to find a place that is respectful and caring, but also can help them recognize where they are um, progressing towards managing their illness and when they're not progressing to that end. Well, thank you, Tom. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, Greg. We've been talking with Tom Stuber, CEO of the Lakata Way, the wellness and recovery, a leader in recovery services since 1981, serving residents in Lorraine and Medina counties. Please join us for our next podcast with Ed Hughes, author and lecturer as well as CEO of the Counseling Center in Portsmouth, Ohio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.